Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We've reached May 1901, and surprisingly, Louis Boerta is trying to reach out to Lord Kitchener, who's the British Army commander of the over 240,000 troops in South Africa. General Boerta wants special permission to send emissaries to Paul Kruger in the Netherlands to ask if a ceasefire could be arranged. But that only happened after Boerta and Jan Smuts had collected as much information about the Boers' situation, and it was a depressing account. They were running out of weapons, ammunition, food, clothing, horses, money, everything, as historian Martin Bosenbrook writes. Could supplies be sent from Europe through German Southwest Africa, perhaps? Between the two countries was a significant desert, but was traversable. Still, this was indicative of just how desperate the Boer leadership was. While General Kurs de la Rey and Christian de Vett and the other unconventional leaders were foraying back and forth, the echelon of senior leaders was growing more aware of the unsustainable situation. It was all very well to drive yourself to fight in a tussle of life and death motivated by your country and land and the wrongs committed against you, but it's suicidal if you have no weapons. Lord Kitchener was squeezing the Boers very hard and the stress was beginning to show. There were around 20,000 burghers still in the felt fighting. Two-thirds of these were in the Transvaal, one-third in the Free State. Worse for the Boers, the black population was becoming more and more hostile to the Boer commandos and ominously more threatening towards their women and children. The British were strengthening the reinforcements around the railways. They had begun building blockhouses. The drives were in full force and they had also deployed thousands of coloured and black troops as scouts and guards. They were arming these men, as we know. In the midst of all this, the Boer commandos were angry about the incarceration of the women and children, but they were also growing more disconsolate. That meant morale was being sapped. The women and children were either left to fend for themselves on the farms that were spared, and the farms that were burnt meant the civilians were transported to concentration camps where they were being mistreated by both the British and their Boer hands-upper fellow citizens. The hands-uppers, or hands-uppers, were Boers who had surrendered. Many were involved in depriving the wives and children of the diehards of both food and drink. Children were dying in large numbers in these camps, and the information about this was beginning to seep out in reports, as we've heard last week. Emily Hobhouse had just arrived back in England at this stage and had met senior government officials to discuss the plight of the civilian refugees. With winter around the corner, Boerta and Jan Berger, the acting president, were pessimistic about the future. They were still intending to fight to the very end, but if nothing changed, they would be compelled to lay down their arms, said Boerta in his memoirs later. But at the time, General Louis Boerta kept his conclusion to himself. He was angry at Christian de Vett, for example, for his unauthorized incursion into the Cape Colony in March, which had ended very badly for the great Boer leader, forced back into the Free State by the massive number of British troops, which at one stage encircled him. Boerta was also facing anger from the Free State Boer commander de Vett, who believed he shouldn't have approached Kitchener in a unilateral manner and was livid about the ceasefire plans. Both of these projects led nowhere. It's typical of a fractured guerrilla conflict, where the leadership is not in constant contact and disagree about the basic strategy. They should be working together. We heard last week how the Transvaal Boer leadership had met near Ermelo on the 10th of May and wrote a letter to the Free State President Steyn, who was travelling with the vet. I also explained how angry Steyn had been about the plans for a ceasefire, believing the Transvaal Boers were once more going to let his people down. He was so angry, he wrote two letters. 
one for public consumption and one just for the Transvaal leadership, where he stated there was no way the struggle for their land would not continue. While the Boer leadership traded letters and plans, the British were moving ahead with their felt-clearing operations, as Lord Kitchener was determined to end the war as quickly as possible. Kitchener had created a controversial new military organisation to go along with his mounted infantry and cavalry. They were the Cattle Ranger Corps, consisting of former Boer commando members who had surrendered and joined the British Army. The Corps was set up ostensibly to manage the livestock that was being seized as part of the farm burning campaigns around the Transvaal. Most of the core activity was around the Pretoria area at first and allowed the British forces to focus on hunting down the small bands of burghers still on the run. This of course led to unsavoury confrontations involving former Boer fighters and the populations who took them generally as traitors. The British armed the core soldiers with a horse, rifle, ammunition and then let them loose on the felt. In the southeastern Transvaal, reports emerged of British using Zulu warriors to loot cattle from Boers. There's an allegation made that British officer Colonel Bottomley sent a letter to King Dinazulu suggesting he send his men into the region to grab cattle, and around 6,000 warriors crossed the border between Natal and the Transvaal in May 1901. There was a small skirmish where a number of Zulu troops were shot, but they made off with a herd thought to number in the thousands. Meanwhile, to the northwest of the Transvaal border with Bechuanaland, modern-day Botswana, Denise Reitz and a small commander under the leadership of Commandant Jan Kemp were under orders to attack the railway line, which was being used to ferry supplies into Mafeking. General Delaray had divided his force into two parties and took one of these south where he began to engage with British columns. Commandant Jan Kemp led his group west, and in May they rode through barren country until they reached a point on the Hartz River. British troops could be seen along the river watching for any Boer movement, so they decided to make the crossing at night. Reitz was part of a German scouting unit led by the Johannesburg businessman called Meyer, who was sent ahead of the main body riding through the Kunana Native Reserve all night until four the next morning when they crossed the British border. Reitz says, The railway ran only a mile or so beyond and we soon reached the metals. We started tearing up the track with poles from a neighbouring fence for our only tools. They had been reduced to using poles. All their dynamite and other explosives, which had been so effective earlier in the war, were gone. Rates was still hobbling around from the compound fracture of his leg, but was determined to keep fighting. Maya handed me a pair of pliers and told me to climb up one of the telegraph standards and cut the wires. No easy task with my sore leg, he writes understatedly. As I was swarming up, there came a sudden volley from a culvert about 50 yards away. I slid down, and in a moment we were on our horses and away, for now we were discovered. There was no hope of surprising a train. They made it back to a hill, around a kilometre away, and there found a local Tswana village. The commander would try and get information about the number of soldiers guarding the line below. It was growing light as we rode through the gateway of the thorn enclosure surrounding the stut, and when we entered... Two khaki-clad white men rushed out of a hut, rifle in hand, followed by a native also armed. There was not a moment to lose. Maya sprang off his horse and fired a single shot from his Lee Medford as his feet hit the ground. He hit a native through the chest, says Rates, and the other two men put up their hands. This single shot caused a panic in the village. The natives grabbed their crosses, mats, 
babies and fled down the slope in the direction of the railway line to seek protection from the British troops, the women setting up a long drawn-out wail as they ran. The civilians were also close to the fighting throughout this war, and even here, in an isolated village hundreds of miles from Johannesburg and Pretoria, a skirmish saw them in the middle of the violence. Maya knew that these fugitives had to be stopped and ordered raids to head them off. So I galloped round to get in front of them, he says. But before he could, a terrible incident occurred that obviously shook rates. Some of the Germans in the scouting unit had lagged behind on the way up the hill from the railway line to the village. When they saw the rush of natives coming at them in the uncertain light, they opened fire, thinking themselves attacked. Before I could stop the shooting, they killed four and wounded several others, nearly getting me too. Rates leapt from his horse, semi-broken leg notwithstanding, and tried to help the wounded. Maya rode up and did likewise. We did what we could for the wounded, and had them carried back to the huts, greatly upset at what had happened, for there were two women amongst the dead. The two white men captured at the village turned out to be national scouts from Potrefstrum. They were former Boers who had turned traitor. Their future was dark. They were handed over later on to General Delaray, who had them both executed, says Rates. By now, the sun was up and the scouts could see the main Boer commando approaching through the bush. They were riding in small parties, making for the railway line. Maya sent a scout to warn them that the English were there, but he was too late. Before the messenger got halfway, shells came screeching through the air from a hill beside the line. So far from expecting to be shelled, we had believed this part of the railway to be unguarded, but we could now make out quite a considerable number of tents among the trees. They had stumbled on a large column of English troops, and Kemp ordered an immediate withdrawal. Once again they rode away from what Rates called a pointless venture. They rode a remarkable 50 kilometres that day, an incredible distance considering that fodder was now hard to come by, and water even more so. Kemp and his commando arrived back at Liopan that night, where they found General Delaray, who was back from his southern engagements. He said there were several English columns halted in a semicircle ahead, and he instructed Kemp to get out of their way that night. Then the general rode away. Rates did not realize it at the time, but he would never see the old man again. Having told us what to do, he rode away with his handful of retainers, and I did not see the doughty old warrior again, for from that night our roads lay far apart. Rates was in pain again, his semi-healed leg hurting in the cold May night air, but that night they were off again. Kemp led his commando through the English camps, using the tactic the Boers were so good at, weaving through heavily defended camps at night silently. In a strange way, the size of the camps meant the English guards were overconfident, believing that the Boers wouldn't come close. That meant the Boers could use this confidence to their own advantage. We were skillfully guided, for we slipped through a gap between two camps, passing so close that we could hear the murmur of voices and could see the forms of soldiers outlined against their fires. There was no alarm raised until the Boers had made it through, when the English sentries suddenly opened fire, but it was too late. The commander had avoided capture. Their journey, though, was just beginning. Kemp ordered the men to march on foot to spare the horses and to keep them silent, and for Ritz, this was torture. He limped as quickly as he could, but gradually was left behind. Worse, Rates did not realize that the mare he'd been riding was pregnant 
and she suddenly stopped and delivered a stillborn foal. With this travail coming upon her, she had borne the long trek so unfaltingly that I had not even known that there was anything wrong with her, but now her strength was gone. He sat with his horse as she slumped to the ground, preferring to take a chance that she would recover rather than just leave her. After all, Reds could barely walk properly, and had his mare not recovered, he would be in dire straits. After a while, she staggered to her feet, and as I could not risk remaining in too close proximity to the English camps, whose fires were still visible in the darkness, I led her slowly forward. By this time, the commando had vanished, leaving Rates once more marooned on the lonely felt. He plodded on in the darkness, dragging his horse behind him, until it could go no further. Dawn was breaking. And in those moments before dawn, the biting cold worsened. It was bitterly cold, so cold that earlier in the evening I had heard the men say that it was the coldest night they had ever known. He had no fuel for a fire, and tried to sleep after wrapping a blanket around his shoulders sitting with chattering teeth until sunrise. When it grew light, I found myself on a cheerless expanse with a view that extended for many miles, but there was no sign of the commando. Then, to Rates's relief, he saw in the distance four of his German friends who had missed him during the night and, knowing that he was crippled, had remained behind to wait for Rates. The five collected firewood and built a small fire to fry some meat. It was day three with virtually no sleep, but they set off after breakfast, following the spur of the commander. Progress was slow. For my companion's horses were not in very much better condition than my own, Rates writes. By mid-morning, the signs they were dreading became apparent. Ominous pillars of dust rising in the rear warned us that the English columns of last night were returning in our direction. The troops were not yet in sight, but they were moving fast, and Rates and his German friends were not. They stood a poor chance of keeping ahead of this column once the English scouts popped up on the skyline. There was still no sign of these, but Rates knew it was a matter of time before they'd be spotted. Just as we were beginning to see an occasional horseman far behind us, we providentially came on the Hartz River. It was more of an earth crack than a river at this point. There were no trees for shelter on the banks, and even fifty yards away, the river could not be seen. But it was our salvation, for hardly were we and our horses out of sight in the dry river bed below when the troops came swarming towards the river. Instead of rushing the Boers, however, the British adopted a more cautious approach. They began digging an approach road to the riverbed in order to drag their wagons and guns across, and this delayed the column by many hours. The five fugitive Boers, Rates and his German friends, were hiding from view, and miraculously the British failed to see this little group. All the while, Rates peered over the top in fear of discovery. But no scouts were sent in their direction, and finally, just before nightfall, the convoy vanished over the horizon. So Rates is in this strange situation. The large column was chasing Kemp's commando, and behind the column came the little group of Boers. For the next three or four days, we toiled on behind the enemy, who in turn were following our men. We kept some distance to the rear, only moving when the dust clouds ahead of us showed that the English were advancing too, and in this manner we crawled along on foot, leading our horses by the reins. It was mid-May, and they had spent more than a week stranded behind a massive English column, living on their wits and half expecting to be discovered at any moment. 
That was when a burger found them one night, the first boer they'd seen since they'd dropped behind. He told us that General de la Rey had dispersed his commandos into smaller bands, owing to the pressure from converging British columns. These bands were by now scattered all over the western Transvaal. The five friends had to decide what to do, continue chasing their own commando or make a break for it. The burger took one look at their horses and said they stood virtually no chance of finding Meyer and the other Germans. With that, the man rode off leaving Reitz and the other four to digest the information they'd received. The four Germans wanted to head to the warmth of the low felt, the eastern Transvaal, where temperatures hardly ever dropped to below zero centigrade, as they did on the Haarfeld. As far as they were concerned, the war could pause for winter, after which they would find Meyer again and continue fighting. Seeing that they attached no particular moral value to the necessity of rejoining our unit, I now sprang on them my long-cherished scheme of making for the Cape Colony, says the indefatigable Reitz. His friends stared at him as if he was mad. What would these five do next? However, that's a topic for next week. We must halt right now, make a fire and bundle up against the biting winds. Thanks to all those who've sent me messages again this week, particularly Gustav, who says his son, who previously had little interest in these sorts of stories, is now listening to the podcast. That is gratifying. I hope he continues to build an interest in history, which is always closer to the present than we think. Please rate the podcast if you can. Head off to our website, abwarpodcast.com, through which you can send me an email or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week. Goodbye. <laughs>